Hello everybody, welcome back to the BSF lecture series on Matthew. I'm Abraham Lee, the teaching leader for the San Francisco region, and today we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 4, which describes the start of Jesus' ministry with his being led by the Spirit into the desert where he was tempted, after which he embarked on his public ministry to call the lost to repentance and the kingdom of God. But before I begin, I just wanted to share a few brief announcements. Number one, uh, BSF needs your voluntary support. Uh, if you would like to make a donation to the international headquarters for BSF, the BSF offering is taken through the bsfinternational.org website. And when you do so, please be sure to include our class code, which is 1232. That's a simple number to remember, but it re represents our group here in the San Francisco Bay region. And that number is 1232. Number two, please be thinking of ways to support your local groups, either by calling each other, reminding and encouraging the brothers to faithful attendance, and maybe even holding discussions apart from the main one that you hold with your group leader, uh, just to be supportive and to be praying for each other during these uh, difficult times. Some people are still unemployed. Some people may be having a, a radically different schedule or maybe ill or under the weather themselves. Uh, people appreciate someone else calling them and, and catching up and checking in. So if you would like to do that, please ask your members for their number or contact and just be supportive and, and encouraging to each other in your group, developing those friendships. Uh, if you would like to meet in person, we do have Tuesday night at 7 p.m. available. If your group does not meet on Tuesday nights, feel free to drop in in person and jump into a group that does meet in person at First Baptist Church. There are four groups at various different uh, age levels available for that time. The fourth announcement is a new mini Matthew study provided by BSF headquarters as a tool to invite your friends to try out BSF. It's a great way for them to get their foot in the door, maybe to tip, dip their toe in and see if it's something they might be interested in. And a lot of people out there are looking for good, rigorous Bible studies. Uh, and so you can send them this link, which will help them get registered and, and help them access the content. The BSF survey reveals that 35% of those who have partic participated in the mini-study as visitors became class men members eventually. So that's a great tool to get them involved. And number five, uh, remember that we have a leaders meeting to discover and discuss uh, on Saturday mornings at eight. Those are only for leaders. However, we are uh, inviting uh, current members also to come and join us to see what the training is all about. If you're curious about what BSF leadership entails, you're more than welcome to drop by. A Zoom code will be available if you can email us at BibleStudyNSF at gmail.com. That's BibleStudyNSF at gmail. All right, so moving on to our lesson, key highlights and questions to be thinking about as we discuss this chapter are, number one, uh, when Satan tempts Jesus, remember that he uses this phrase, if you really are the Son of God. And this is actually a question widely uh, spoken in doubt when confronted with the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It's asked by all those who hear the gospel but re resist his Lordship. Number two, um, another key uh, phrase here is we live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Remember that this is the same word that is spoken to create the universe in Genesis 1. 
Jesus is that very word which brought all things into his existence. He had said, I am the vine and you are the branches, which means without him, we can do nothing. And so John 11, he also further uh, emphasizes this point by saying, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And this promise and this uh, statement of spiritual reality is something that is very much linked to the reality and the uh, deeper understanding of what uh, every word of God spoken from the mouth of God means. So please pay particular attention uh, in your meditation on that. The point uh, three is, uh, why is worship brought up here in the third temptation? And recall that we humans were created for worship. Worship is basically the unfolding by discovery, the value and worthy aspects of God, reflecting that in our minds and uh, in our discourse with one one another, leading to joy. We lift up our worship because our hearts acknowledge the great worth and the great uh, character of God, who is far above our knowing, but he allows us in unfolding and continuous revelation of who he is in the, uh, by the things that he's created and his working in our lives. So here, Satan tries to steal that, not only to counter um, our created purpose or to steal and to lie about our created purpose, but he defeats our reasoning for living and hinders God's worthy worship from rightfully emanating from his beloved creatures uh, from humanity. So please be on the lookout for those ideas. Our big idea for this lesson is God's word is powerful and gives us the light of truth to live victoriously in our faith walk. God's word is powerful and gives us the light of truth to live victoriously in our faith. There are two divisions for this study. The first one is from verses 1 through 11, and that's God's powerful word demonstrated personally in the way in which we see it is demonstrated through the temptation and the devil is countered with God's powerful word. And then the second is God's powerful word demonstrated publicly, where Jesus is demonstrating the use of his word being spoken through discipleship and teaching, calling to repentance and the kingdom of God and his public ministry through verses 12 and 17. And our key uh, verse uh, that I've chosen for this lecture is taken from Psalms 119, where it says, Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light unto my path. And other verses to supplement this thought is taken from 1 Peter 1.23. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, Psalms 19.7 says. It refreshes the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. A central feature of this passage in chapter 4 are the lies that are embedded within the temptation and the struggle that Jesus faces. Lies get us in trouble. Demonic lies always tell us we can get away with attitudes, behaviors, and actions that are contrary to living a fruitful and abundant life in God's ways. This is particularly difficult for young people, especially when peer pressure, social pressure, and unfettered recklessness overrides trust in the people who love them and want the best for their lives. And some of these lies that kind of crowd in and bring doubt and um, 
resistance to young people are embodied in phrases like life is short you should try anything at least once you'll never know what you're missing unless you give it a shot a little won't hurt they're having the time of their lives so why don't you do too it's your body nobody can tell you what to do so these attitudes that follow us way past our youth throughout life into a life of sin distances us from god and breaks us down Lies seem great when it gives credence to what we want to do, but all lies have consequences that bear out its sinful roots as we eventually see the fruits of sin. What are the lies that you have believed that have thrown you into confusion, hurt your relationship with others, or exacerbated sin in your own life? Jesus knows how devastating lies can be. In fact, sin entered humanity by the father of lies. So Jesus goes to confront the master liar who bears false witness of God himself. After his baptism, Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit, and God the Father declares his love and pleasure with his Son. Then in a move that doesn't make the most sense to us, he is led into the desert by the Holy Spirit to be tempted. This temptation parallels the original temptation in the Garden of Eden, but unlike its lush and beautiful environment, this setting in the desert is desolate and dead, which is an apt symbolic representation of the world under sin, which has infected every aspect of human life. It is a real desert, but it is also an apt spiritual representation of the parched and unfruitful world of sin. Jesus and John the Baptist already lived a very ascetic, minimal life to bear out the power of full devotion to the spiritual calling they received. But now, in this additional 40 days and nights of fasting, Jesus is going a step further, living into the power of the Spirit so fully that you can imagine angels take notice of something unusual happening in this desert. Jesus is demonstrating God's power, not by reliance on material and fleshly means, but by wholly being devoted and relying on the Holy Spirit. And it appears that the power of his spiritual life is drawing Satan's attention. It is not that there was temptation in the condition and place that Jesus is at, but when you are living for God in full devotion, fasting and prayer, Satan will come at you with accusations and lies. Jesus shows that the person living so fully into the spiritual life and utilizing the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, as the Scripture tells us, that it is supremely powerful because he is able to rise above the concerns of the world with a greater view that the Spirit of God gives. All of Jesus' responses give affirmation to the work and power of that Spirit-filled life. When Jesus goes into the desert, at this onset of his ministry, he is declaring war on the demonic forces that have taken all mankind captive to his will. The Spirit leads him into the desert, and you might also see this as a figurative place of spiritual wasting, where humanity's existence is taken bondage by Satan. There he confronts satanic dominance and lies and perversions of the most basic and core truths of God himself. Temptations are tests of who we are and what we believe. They reveal the inner quality of who we are. Temptations and trials have the effect of revealing things that bring out those things that we are not very clear about ourselves, that we don't even realize we have within ourselves. I had a friend who said to me once, you don't know what's in your cup until you're bumped. You don't know what's in your cup until you're bumped. 
Have you been at a party or at a gathering and you had a cup of coffee or tea and then you've been bumped? A little bit of a splash of whatever was inside um, spills out. Uh, this analogy is a fascinating observation given most of us believe we know ourselves pretty well. And like that cup, we present on the outside a nice and pristine image to the outside world. But when in crisis or trouble or temptation comes and our peace is broken and our cup is bumped by circumstances or temptation, the hidden and dark and sometimes wretched matters within our hearts and minds spill out. Things that we didn't even know was inside. Adam and Eve and their temptations are like this. Their lives are so good in the garden, they begin to grow suspicious of the gracious hands that provided all of it. And within, there's a festering distrust of God and His goodness. Like a teenager who, growing up under just the comforts and love of their parents, not realizing how much is put into creating this uh, nice environment, uh, this teenager rails against a loving parent who enforces protective boundaries for their well-being. Likewise, we too can start questioning God's heart motives. It's the first indication of ego-centered independence. That I am supremely self-sufficient and exist of my own accord and for my own purposes. That is the very temptation that Satan fell into by his own beauty and power that God had bestowed on him as a ministering spirit and a servant before God. It is the first indication of ego-centered independence. The temptations of Jesus in the desert reveals his divinity. His answers are opposite the tone that Adam and Eve took. He expresses his reliance on God, on God's word, on his perfect will and intentions, and on his sovereignty and worth in worship. And that's what we have all humanity been created for, to acknowledge and to receive and bear witness of the glory of God's worthiness in worship. Let's look at his powerful words in temptation in verse 3 and following. So remember the father had just said, this is my son in the previous week. Well, now the devil says, well, if you are the son of God, does this sound familiar at all? It's the same strategy he used in the garden to get us to doubt truth. To look around and say, okay, life isn't what I expected. Does God really care? Does what he say really matter? Is it really true? Is he really who he says he is? Because there's this gap between my experience of God and what I read about him. I don't know how to reconcile that. So all these doubts and suspicions start to arise for us. But Jesus' response to this in verse 4, if you are the Son of God, is to quote the Word of God. Jesus answered, it is written, man should not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Could Jesus turn stone into bread for himself? Indeed, yes. But to use his power to make bread right now, right then, was not God's will. That wasn't the point. That wasn't the plan. That was out of point to the circumstances by which he was drawn by the Spirit into the desert. Right now, the point is the power of God's Word and the primacy and the fundamental nature of God's Word to everything about us in our existence. Jesus is making the point that his spiritual mission must have supremacy over any impulses of the flesh. And in fact, 
our very lives hang on the balance by His Word, by the supremacy of His Word. In this case, it is the power of the Spirit to obliterate satanic lies. Do you remember the last time something like this happened when you were divided between doing something God placed on your heart to do versus something for yourself? Um, maybe your mission, as God was placing and urging you, was disrupted by thoughts of getting a meal or a snack, a personal benefit, or enjoying yourself, or taking it easy, or skipping your time with God and with God's people. you got to watch that Netflix show, or get some news in, or, or um, you know, you could spend time with God's people and worship and study some other time. Uh, you need some time for yourself. When our flesh impulses are the primary priorities in our lives, we won't be able to respond to spiritual concerns brought to us by the Holy Spirit. And then we will miss out on experiencing the power of the Spirit that we often complain is missing from our lives. Often complaining, why isn't God doing something more? Why am I falling behind spiritually? Why don't I experience the power of the Holy Spirit in my life like other people are experiencing it? These may be because the fleshly impulses have overtaken everything else the Lord is doing or wanting to do through you. Yes, Jesus, the Son of God, had personal needs too, but He never allowed the flesh and the world dictate His priorities. The physical need does not need to be met above and beyond the spiritual need, which must come first for the Christian. In verse 5, now the devil tries another tactic, taking Jesus to this incredible spot of great height. And Satan knows that the Jews believe the Messiah would suddenly appear in the temple, uh, which is written in Malachi 3.1. So he's using God's word, but twisting it. Satan does this because he's a liar and he twists and distorts the truth. He perverts it. He distorts God's word, and we find this distortion even today take place everywhere where people are misinformed and unstudied in God's word. They distort it for their own purposes and their own ends. Look at verse 6. He says, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Satan goes to the original temptation at the garden, which is at the core of our relationship with God. He calls us to distrust God. The effects of distrusting God is to doubt and question God's best intentions. And it is as bad as total disbelief in God. The second temptation is the test of putting God under a microscope to test his character and to try him out to put him under our will as we scrutinize his intentions. Our will be done instead of thy will be done. And the response that Jesus gives is from Deuteronomy 6.16. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put your Lord God to the test. This is different from obeying God as Daniel and his three faithful friends did when they declared, Whether we die, they said, by the fiery furnace or that God saves us, either way we will serve the Lord. The danger here when we test God is that we're asking him to align himself to our will instead of we aligning our wills to his. We are called to live lives that trust God, not test God. This is again another instance when we don't know the word of God and what he has said, the truths that he's revealed to us through his word in the Bible. It can be put us in a more vulnerable place when we don't know God's word and fill those gaps in with what people have said or secondhand knowledge. And that isn't what God has said all along. 
So Jesus' response with Scripture reveals not only his dependence on the Father, but the power of the Father's word. For the second time now, Jesus has used the word of God as a powerful defense against Satan. Verses 8 and 10 is the temptation of worship. You have to remember, we were created to worship. All of the angels are created to worship and serve God. Our worship of God grows as we come into fuller and greater understanding of His great worth and His majesty, the majesty and the glory of His name, the character of who God is that's constantly unfolding and manifesting itself in our lives. It is central to the gospel because the gospel calls us to rightly come back to worship God as one who loves us and has spared no cost to rescuing us from death, demonic bondage, and sin. Worship Jesus as the Lord your God and serve Him only. Not kingdoms, wealth, and the standards of lifestyle that you're trying to maintain, the career and the job life that runs you empty and dry. The Bible says worship Him first and worship Him only. That's when your intrinsic purpose in creation is fulfilled. Upon conquering spiritual temptation, then Jesus embarks on the spiritual mission of calling out others to the kingdom of God. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living on the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Matthew 4.16 Isn't it interesting that we are most effective in the spiritual work and experience God's power when we are squelching and breaking down every spiritual lie and stronghold that stands in our way? stands as an obstacle to living by His truth. So let's look at two key principles in this chapter. The first principle is God's word of truth is a powerful weapon to overcome temptation. Much of our failures in living faithfully is due not to taking God's word seriously. Most of us compartmentalize our religious compartments to at most two hours on a Sunday and expect radical transformation and victorious Christ-centered living. But when you think about it, even the worst schools in America demand far more of their students than the church does. Would you be content with doing as little as possible at the worst school for what you claim to be the most important commitment in your life? Jesus is the only one who has ever taught about the reality of the world in truth with the authority of being the glory of God in the flesh, the radiance and brilliance of God in the flesh. Is it that hard for us to then to take God's word more seriously in applying it to everything we think about and do? Remember what the scripture says about his word. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Second Timothy says, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God, that's you and me, may be thoroughly equipped and prepared for every good work. James says, Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. And Psalms admonishes, as for God, his way is perfect. The Lord's word is flawless. He shields all who take refuge in him. And then Matthew 24 reminds us, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, he says, will never pass away. And finally, Proverbs 2, 6 says, the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. And these are all Contrary to what the world teaches, to us, science and human reasoning is the source of truth and knowledge. 
but the Bible constantly and consistently tells us the root of all true understanding and knowledge and that which gives life is from God's word and from him directly through Christ. The second principle to remember is God's word of truth empowers then his people to follow him. Consequently, God's word of truth empowers people to follow him. After demonstrating the power of God's word in the confrontation with the tempter, the father of lies, Jesus goes in among the lost and he's able to conduct ministry. He teaches and admonishes people to repentant heart and the kingdom of God, calling his disciples and ministering to the sick and needy. It is frequently observed in the Bible that the people were struck by the power and authority with which Jesus taught, unlike their religious leaders at the time. We don't know Christ because someone has coerced us or cajoled us with fancy words or provided enough convincing arguments. We follow because we have read and heard God's word and the Holy Spirit acted upon our hearts to be convinced of its truth. When the prodigal son, for instance, in Jesus' parable, returns, it is not the reality of what he has to say into the situation that brings him back, but it is the reality of the Father's words of love and forgiveness that he is restored again. It is the forgiveness beyond the prodigal's wildest possible imagination. When the apostles, therefore, testify of Jesus throughout the civilized world, it is not their feelings and ideas that convince anyone and that shakes the world, but the truth of God's word through the law and the prophets they present to their testimony that makes all the difference. They know that God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. The world's influences can pervert our thinking about God and our lives in the world. Pervert in Greek means to reverse or to turn inside out. God's word is an antidote to that perversion. The world teaches that there is no truth, only narrative and story. Its relativism says that you find your own truth in the story or narrative. You can't tell anybody else what their truth is. They say you can't break it down into propositions and into truth statements. And there's no either or. You can't do that. There's no basis for understanding a higher story with clear propositional truths. Life offers many different narratives, they say, that are all good and bear different truths. So you can't do that. You can't force your truth on anyone. They say it's ultimately what the person reads into it. And you can't make definitive statements and propositions from what you hear. Of course, the Bible says exactly the opposite. The Bible says the gospel is a historical account and biblical truth directly from God about who we are and why we've been created. Paul says it matters how we see the Bible and read it. It's not about your good feelings and what you make of it and how you interpret it yourself. That's why the apostles break it down for us in all their epistles and letters to the church. And if you're interested more about how this, uh, uh, the assembly of the Bible took place, I want to encourage you to uh, maybe pick up the Bible Project podcast, where a good in-depth discussion is provided to give you confidence about the amazing ways that the Holy Spirit worked among people faithfully to compose the Bible and bring it down generations to us. In John 8.31, Jesus says to his followers, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. His truth enlightens your heart. It illuminates. It's not a general thing that can be overlooked. Have you experienced the power of his word? When was the last time you have been excited about some truth illuminated by the Bible, by God's word in your life, when you spent time with God? 
When was the last time God's Word illuminated and brought new insight and understanding that had been life-transforming? The effect of hearing God's Word is transformational. It creates a radical change in our lives. When you hear and understand God's Word, God's Word, it startles you. It really does startle you, and you realize Jesus is calling you, as He did back then, His disciples. His Word calls you to an unexpected journey that continues to illuminate and bring joy and purpose you never thought possible in your life, and that at every turn. 